This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn, and today is September the 17th. Now, the other day, I started thinking about the moments in animal sheltering, animal welfare, field services, the history, you know, these times that we now look back on and go, wow, like, A, I can't believe we didn't always do that, and B, that really changed everything. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples. TNR, Trap, Noon, Return of Community Cats, like, we used to not do that, <laughs> Large-scale adoption events in highly trafficked public places. They talk about raising the visibility of adoption. Fostering. Microchips. There's an endless list. And while we're still working our way through fully implementing the next generation of life-saving programs across the industry, things like open adoptions and managed intake, another hugely important issue, one that is long overdue, is finally coming to the forefront. And that's diversity, equality, and inclusion. Episode 16, we chatted with James Evans, president of CARE, that's Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity. Now, since that time, the conversation has continued. Best Friends and other organizations are working with CARE to understand and see our unconscious biases and how they limit our life-saving effectiveness. How can we develop and implement thoughtful hiring policies? And how can we thoughtfully reach out to underserved communities and build relationships that can allow us to serve the people and pets who love them in every corner of America. The Best Friends Network offers all sorts of content, resources, playbooks, all designed to help us learn from each other and implement best practices that will help us save more lives. And town halls are part of that. The most recent town hall was called Moving Beyond Bias with Care 2.0. It's good really good. And we wanted to share it with you, the podcast listener. It includes a presentation delivered by Jose Ocaño, the Best Friends Senior Director of Culture and Talent. Along with Jose, the panelists are James Evans, President of Care, whose voice you will hear first, and Julie Castle, CEO of Best Friends. Animal welfare groups, shelters, rescues can afford to take care of the pets and give them safe haven because of charity, because of donations, because of grace, because someone someone has decided that you should have these funds as a gift to help take care of these animals. And I say it's time for us to start looking at other people that may not be large organizations, but micro players in the animal welfare world, as in the pet owner that can't afford veterinary services. That person is in the same bucket as anyone running a shelter that is trying to take care of an animal, except that when we look at shelter services, we're okay with soliciting funds. We're okay with asking folks for money as soon as they hit our website. But somehow uh, a homeless woman on the street with her dog, we have some sort of disdain for her when she says, can you give me a dollar so that I can get dog food for my dog? And so we really have to, I think, let go of our war on poverty and our war on the poor. Um, and it's, it's particularly our war on people of color who have not only been subjugated, but continue to be subjugated and suppressed um, and asked to wear a mask. Um, 
in, in all kinds of situations. So we have so much work to do. And it reminds me of the statues that are going down all over the country that are, again, echoes of, of a, a slave history. And, you know, I don't know who said it, and it may have been um, Isabel Wilkerson that pointed out, you know, in Germany, there are no statues of Nazis. There are no statues to take down because the Germans never felt compelled to put them up in the first place. You know, they had Nuremberg trials where people talked through what the Nazis did, not just to Germans, but to Jews and to others. And then you look at South Africa where you have a truth and reconciliation. And unfortunately in this country, we have never had that dialogue. We've never, we've never allowed ourselves to digest um, the atrocities and the institutional racism that followed those atrocities. So we have so much work to do. And I think to have this conversation here within animal welfare is not mission creep. It is actually the mission because we can't separate people from animals, no matter what we do. If, if I come to your door after you invite me, after you tell me to adopt and not shop and I show up and you say no to me, I am going to find a way to have an animal. Um, but the problem is, is I will probably shop online or go to some other breeder and now I have an animal that's not spayed and neutered. So we have to find a way to stop cannibalizing on the mission we're ultimately trying to solve. Um, and that to me has to start with compassion. Yeah, so many things you said always plant these seeds that I think about and I, I really try not to like text you late at night because I'm like he's three <laughs> hours away. But I, for, every text, for every text you get from me, no, there's 10 that I just was like trying to, you know, have some boundaries. Um, but I think about, you know, one of the things you said to me, and I think you wrote about this on your Facebook recently, is how we as, an, as animal welfare organizations rely on others to help us help animals. And I can think of so many times in the adoption lobby that I used to manage when someone would come in and they didn't have the resources to redeem their, reclaim their pet. And we, that was like, well, they don't have the, the resources to have their animals. So they're not equipped. They're, that is not a suitable home. And it, it's interesting to think about, we only are able to take care of animals in that situation because of tax dollars. And in the nonprofits that I've worked at, it's because of people donating. So what in like, what an astute connection to draw, like everyone in order to help animals requires others. And yet when it comes down to the individual person, there's a whole new set of rules that apply. I, I feel like someone asked me today about that connectivity. And I, I am determined to keep thinking and working in such a way that I am Jose, I am Julie. We are all so, so very connected. We are essentially the same being, right? The, the problem with taking a DNA test and why it takes so long, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's because we're so similar that it takes scientists so much work to figure out what is actually the difference between me and Jose, right? And so I know what my limitations are and I know that I share those with other individuals regardless of their race or gender. 
I also know what my strengths are. And I know I share that with other people. And I know that I don't stand here alone. I didn't start my company alone. I didn't start care alone. And so I try to reach into the world with the assumption that we're all the same. And I know that best friends did not start because alone best friends started the same way so many large organizations start by donations by saying this is what we want to do and will you contribute and i just want us to be to feel that same way when someone comes to us and says you know my dog has matted hair and i just don't know what to do we should find a way to help people like that and not end up in this case with dallas where that matting becomes so severe that the animal is injured. Now the animal has to be amputated. Now the parent guardians are in detention centers. I mean, what kind of insanity um, are we dealing with where we can't stop and say, you know, there must be a compassionate way to help someone that is actually trying to help themselves, but only limited by finances. And I think like, this conversation, I think, is hugely important. If we are serious as a, a working group of advocates, if we really want to save lives, it, it really starts with rethinking um, our relationship with people and their relationship with their pets and really putting away that judgment, especially when it's connected to money, because money is simply not it should not be a criteria for whether or not someone is a compassionate and loving pet owner. Yeah, no, totally agree. So Julie, one of the things that I, one of the many things that I love about you is that when all of this started, just your personal commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion work. And I think that started with just some self-reflection uh, personally as an organization. And one of the things you've been really astute about saying to everyone, us internally as staff is saying, we are not gonna have a DEI initiative that lives in a box over there. You have really been advocating and pushing and kind of the, the marching orders for all of us is, how do you, you all need to integrate this in every aspect of our, of our organization and of our operations. Um, why has that been so important to you? You know, I, I think that, well, first of all, I feel that um, at Best Friends and really for our entire movement that we are so incredibly fortunate to have somebody like Jose right here, right now at this moment in time to be leading this for us because um, we talk about those layers of diversity and, you know, the fact that if, if people know your personal story, look, they know that you grew up in abject poverty and you're a Hispanic male who's entered, again, a very uh, white field. And I feel like it's just the timing was perfect. You were already overseeing our culture initiative. And to me, this is culture. And um, I, I get the sort of appointing a diversity officer or a, but I think that just to me segment it, segments it even more. I think it is something that 
needs to be integrated as part of the culture. It needs to be lived from top to bottom. And we absolutely need to make sure that it isn't somebody else's job because that is a recipe for failure. Whenever you designate culture over here as one person's job or it's HR, HR's job or you have a diversity officer, I think the intention is good. But to me, the integration fully throughout the organization is, is what is critical. And, uh, you know, I think about James Evans um, being here with us today and the fact that we had the tremendous opportunity to actually hire him with all of his wisdom and knowledge to be able to help us sort of drive through a lot of these strategies um, and not make it just some separate thing that I feel like, again, well-intentioned organizations or corporations say, oh, this is the latest hot button issue. We better, you know, do something about this. This is not that. And I think that we have to be very diligent about that because you can see how it could very easily turn into that. And so, you know, Jose, I think that um, I would love for you, one of, one of the things that I'm uh, really committed to is that, you know, again, Americans have a very short attention span. And I think this is top of the news cycle and it continues to be. But we have a very small window of time and a door that's opened right now. And we need to step through that door because soon this likely will be out of the news cycle, but we can't let that affect the effort that we need to put forward to actually create real change because it is our opportunity to grab this and actually demonstrate that and provide leadership to other organizations, not just in animal welfare, but throughout the country. And um, I think Jose, uh, the combination of you and James is like this beautiful, you guys are <laughs> the same person in my mind. And I think that putting that combination, that force together, really integrating it through the organization and then sharing it throughout animal welfare, sharing it throughout, you know, the rest of the United States is going to be a big part of this and hoping that people can take what we're doing and all of the mistakes that we're going to make um the what worked what didn't what's next and just continuing to drive this forward and be responsible humans on this planet and i think about the last town hall we had and a lot of people were talking about this but it's important to me that we actually put action behind this, that this isn't just we get together every two months or so and have a, a really soulful conversation that's full of um, inspiring messages, but what are we actually doing about this? And I think, Jose, I, I want to give you the floor to share with people what, what Best Friends has started to um, you know, really wrap our arms around in terms of 
how we're going about this and not just um, in a rush, but in a really thoughtful way that, that is inclusive, but also is um, something that, that is actually attainable. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super honored to get to kind of work on this with best friends. I was talking to some friends last night. So as you mentioned, Julie, you know, my background, I grew up in Tucson at this, in this neighbor, in a, in a, in a, for us Mexican neighborhoods that are small like that, they're called barrios. And so I was talking to some friends and I feel like all these things that I experienced as a kid in this environment has teed me up for this work, you know? And I, I, I'm a believer that no lived experience should ever be wasted, even the tough stuff that I experienced and went through. And so um, what I'm gonna share today with all of you is a way that you may consider approaching some of this work because we want this to also be practical. We want everyone who's on this call you're here because I think you're curious about this. You're likely doing work in this space. Maybe you don't know where to start. And so this is how we're approaching it. We know that your organizations vary um, quite dramatically, big, small, municipal, nonprofit, rural, in the city. And so this isn't us saying this is the only way to do it. I don't think there is one way. I think you'll have to find what makes sense for you and your team and your resources and your community. But what I'm gonna offer is, if, if you don't know where to start, here's, here's somewhere you may consider. So Andy, go ahead and share that um, presentation. And so the presentation that I'm gonna share, you'll see it's, it's very wordy, which is usually not my style, but I did that so that when we post it, you don't have to miss anything. It's all kind of captured um, there. So the first thing I wanna talk about is our approach. That was the very first thing and I think it was, you know, after George Floyd was murdered, there was a lot of internal conversations and this sense of urgency. And I think every organization and company was having to grapple with what, what is our role in, in this, in what's happening? What can we do to make a difference in a positive way? And so I think the first step was an acknowledgement that animal welfare lacks diversity. Um, and... I mean, and I think, and I want to acknowledge as well that I know that in most situations in an industry that is predominantly women, that is not the case. So it is, it, I always feel kind of weird talking about that. I was talking to someone recently, I was like, oh, it's a diversity hire for best friends might be a male, which is, I think, not the case, <laughs> right, in most places. Um, but we, there was just, I think, an acknowledgement that we had to have with where are we as a movement? What are the systems that in place? We, we call them adoption barriers, but really they're discriminatory adoption policies. That's actually what they are. And how first it's just coming to terms with where we are and why without trying to point blame. That's not what this is about. It's just saying, here's where we are. This is where we're starting from. This, these, this is why we're here so that we can actually start to think about how to move forward. And, I think there was some internal soul searching. And I think a lot of that is articulated in the blog that Julie wrote, which is changing the color of, of our movement. And so if you haven't had a chance, I know they posted that link um, in, in the chat box, check it out. I think it's just kind of, for me, it feels like a well thought out kind of articulation of what's going on in animal welfare within our movement. So that was kind of that first step, that acknowledgement. 
And then we needed to start to think about what approach do we want to take? You know, we know we want to have urgency, but we also know we want to be thoughtful about this. Here's the thing that I say to everyone. There are a lot of landmines in this work. There's a lot of people who don't know what to say, what not to say. They're afraid to ask questions because they're afraid to come off as racist. They're afraid to come off as homophobic, transphobic, ageist. There's all of these different things. So a lot of times you'll put people together to talk about this and they're quiet, not because they have nothing to say, because they don't know how to even start the conversation. So early on, um, we, we approached James and James facilitated some really key conversations. And actually before James, Julie did a town hall with all of the staff saying, here, basically what's in that blog, that happened internally first. We had kind of conversations, we had a pretty extensive Q&A hours and hours actually of just town halls to kind of start to talk to our teams um, about this. And I think James played a really important role in starting us to give us reading lists, framing up like the history of America, the history that a lot of us don't want to remember or don't know it that way. And so that became really, really critical. And we knew we wanted to start talking to folks like James and others who have worked in this space, who have expertise in this. When, when you, the reality is none of us on staff had that, well, had that kind of degree of expertise. So we wanted to look outside of our organization and tap our internal staff who have worked in this space before or who are passionate about it to help us start to construct this. Because like many things, we want the staff to be a part of informing what we do and how we do it because like julie said this isn't a, this isn't about having a diversity and inclusion officer this is about all of us on staff being diversity equity and inclusion officers and so in order to do that the house we build together is a house we're all more likely to live in together and so that was a really important part being inclusive as we built out what our diversity, equity, and inclusion process is. And so the very first part, and I think this is what we talked about in the first town hall, it really became about listening, learning, and self-reflecting because so much of this work starts with us. It's such a personal thing. It's triggering. You know, I go on Facebook and I look at comments and the, there's a lot of people who have strong opinions one way or another about all of this work and we're not going to we can't just put you know a statement on our website and think that everybody is on board at that point and is going to start marching to those like words we had to do a lot of self-reflection we had to start to listen to different experts and different people's experiences so part of how we approach that is we're doing a lot of different offerings for our staff you know on race and ethnicity but keeping in mind that diversity is and when we think about diversity especially as it pertains to like the protected classes you have age you have sexual orientation gender identity people with disabilities and so we want to make sure that we're also being well-rounded about how we're thinking about diversity and what we're really tapping into is what i think is emotional learning so for instance when it comes to race and ethnicity we had James come and share his personal story. That's a powerful thing for someone to share their story. You connect. We've done that with some of our staff members. Our African-American staff members have also shared their experiences, which has been powerful. And we've taken a similar approach to talking about LGBTQIA issues. And we did a really dynamic, one of my most favorite panels on age, you know, 
at Best Friends, we have many different generations represented. And I'm on calls where it's like, oh, those millennials, you know, they just want their trophies or okay, boomer comments. And they're funny, but like, it really is not inclusive and it creates divisiveness. And so we had this panel with folks from representing different generations talking about their pet peeves, their lived experiences. And the, my favorite part was the chat to see how much we had in common. Because the whole point of that wasn't to other each other, it's to actually show even amongst all these different ages, we actually share a lot of things in common. Our, our values are really similar. We are just born in different times. And actually the differences that we do have because of it are our strength. It's what makes us so incredibly dynamic. Um, and that's the kind of thing we're gonna continue to do. This isn't, this isn't like box checking. We're not approaching this like, oh, we did LGBTQIA, check. We'll do that training one more time next year. These are gonna be continued ongoing conversations so that we continue to always build up our competencies and rewire our brains and our muscle memory so that we can be more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. So this is like a cycle. Like we're gonna continually always be talking about these things and really leaning into uplifting the voices of our staff and of our partners who are from marginalized groups to share their experiences so that it really lands and people feel that emotional connection to learn what it is. And hopefully that's what changes minds and hearts. That's our approach. So then, as Julie said, it's so important that this gets integrated in our actual business strategy, like in our operations. So for best friends, we have what's called the roadmap to 2025. It's how we're actually going to support our partners and actually leverage our resources and our volunteers, our donors, and the, the public and the communities that we're interfacing with to achieve no kill by 2025. And so we were actually in, it was a timely because animal welfare is changing around us, right? In this COVID world, COVID isn't going anywhere. I know that's a hard thing to hear, but we live in a COVID world moving forward. So how we do things will always be different moving forward. So we knew we needed to go and relook at our strategy anyways. And Julie was really adamant about we, this is our opportunity to include and embed diversity, equity, and include it, inclusion tactics and strategies in everything, not creating a whole new separate strategy, but something that's ingrained in how we do everything. That's culture. Culture is how you do things. Um, and so because we are thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and how we do things, it's created a new lens. It's a new awareness. I love that I'm in meetings now where we're talking about X, Y, Z, and people are thinking, wait, is this inclusive? Is this equitable? How might we introduce more diversity into this? So we're seeing in our actual operations, these conversations from these, these kind of town hall forums that we're having starting to spark up and it's influencing how we actually are accomplishing and approaching our work, which I think is how it's gonna be sustained and how it doesn't become box checking. It becomes actually a part of our culture, which is why we actually, what you'll see in a little bit is we're not calling them DEI committees. We're calling our, like our working groups, culture councils. So what we did is we started to solicit feedback from our staff and said, what are all the areas we might consider operationally, whether internally or our activity externally on where we should be including diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so what we did was we found 
we identified six areas that we're going to really focus in on. And as we worked on all of this, we talked to folks like James, we're talking to other experts in this field who have done these kinds of works built out. Some call them affinity groups, some call their DEI committees. There's a lot of different names for this. And there's a lot of ways to get it wrong. You getting a bunch of people, throwing them in a room and saying, talk about race relations. We did not think that that would actually create outcomes that we want. We want people to convene together to actually create meaningful change that we can integrate in our operations. So we took some time to pause and sit and think like, what is the best way to actually convene and bring people together? So we came up with these, um, with, and what, they, what these folks helped us with, not only the development, but the recruitment and the ongoing management. So I wanna make sure to call that out. But let me talk a little bit about what those six culture councils are. So we have three, we have one committee that is really focused around strengthening our culture. Those are like how we, so at Best Friends, we have guiding principles. And what we're working on right now are called, we're calling them culture commitments. It's how our guiding principles show up in action. And so we're gonna have a committee that really ensures that we are operating in a way that is in alignment with our culture and how we deliver training, what trainings might we consider, all of those kinds of things. And then there's a space of recruitment, development, um, growth and retention for staff and volunteers. So we're going to have a group of people focused on that area. We're going to have another group focused on that internal um, education learning, our internal, uh, our internal communications and building, you know, uh, checks and balances for accountability amongst ourselves. We're all going to be DEI officers. So building that infrastructure in is going to be important. And the other piece of it is the external stuff, you know, our brand, our communications, our marketing, our donor outreach. That is a big part of how Best Friends operate so that we can bring tools and resources to communities to save lives. How, do, how can this group think about expanding our reach? How do we get more diverse and inclusive? You know, I think one of the things that is my own personal pet peeve is when we think of communities of color, we only think of them in the terms of underserved. These are folks who could be our board members. These are donors. These are it's, it's the whole gamut of people who can also support this, the work that we're doing. So we want to make sure that we're aligned, we're aligned in that kind of mindset. And then for best friends, we have things like conferences and summits. Hopefully you've all been to some of those things, our outward facing things. How do we introduce diversity, equity, and inclusion in the speakers, in the content, in the subject matter? and where we hold these events, you know, all of those kinds of things, we're gonna have a committee focused around that. And because we're best friends and we believe in making data-driven decisions, collecting data, like the map that Julie showed, there's so many ways to break down data to actually let it inform your strategy. So all of these committees are gonna be focused on using data to, to inform their strategy. They're gonna be given a scope of work so that they know what they're working towards. Again, this, the goal isn't to just have folks to sit around, grandstand, dream, and then not it manifest into any action. So what we've done here, what you'll see to the right is, in each committee, there's two, there's two co-chairs, one that's from that concentrated area. So in like the recruitment, someone who has experience in recruitment, and then someone who doesn't, and who doesn't need it because it's gonna introduce fresh ideas. So of the six committees, there's going to be a total of two people co-chairing. So that's 12 people. 
we knew we needed to have a line of communication and accountability and relation to Julie and um, the senior leadership team. And Julie early on said, I want a CEO advisory group. So we're taking those co-chairs and that's who um, Julie's CEO advisory council is gonna be. They're gonna be able to make recommendations. So they'll take data and recruitment. They'll identify some strategies to improve our diversity, equity, inclusion. They'll present that to Julie and the senior leadership team. And then we'll be able to decide how to make operational changes. So the staff is actually informing how we integrate this work. So instead of it being me trying to figure this out, it's our whole organization working together to do this work. And which I think is gonna be really incredible, incredibly comprehensive and long lasting. So this is how we've decided to structure um, our, our councils. And like, this is a philosophy. One of the things Tani Hammond always says about no kill, it's, it, she always says it's a philosophy, it's, a, it's an ethic. DEI is the same to me, it's an ethic. It is about really ongoing continual improvement. This isn't box checking, this isn't we've arrived. It's we have to continue to always work on this. So we will continue to learn and grow and be better. So that is what, um, how we're approaching diversity, equity, and inclusion um, here at Best Friends. One of the things that I'm really excited about that Julie mentioned earlier was that we are working with James on this. So we, we entered into a partnership with CARE. So James, tell us a little bit about that. What will you be doing with us? Um, I'm so excited about it. Thank you. Um, I mean, the whole thing is exciting. I feel like Best Friends and the relationship that we're developing is such a model for the way the rest of the industry should should go. Whether or not it's with care or with someone else doesn't really matter. But I think the the sort of the positioning and the thoughtfulness by which we're operating, I think, should be a model. Um, and and again, not just for animal welfare, but for myriad organizations. So we're we are sort of tasked with really finding out more data. Um, as it relates to people of color and their pets. We're going to focus on, on cats, um, but essentially my background is mass comms and like best friends, for, for us, that's all about data. It's all about finding out what are those interpersonal relationships that people are having with their pets that so often, people of color that is, so often animal welfare is not tapped into. Um, we are all so similar, but there are nuances. And if, if we don't get those nuances right, um, we will miss, we'll be like ships passing in the night. Even though we're on the same ocean, we may be on different vessels. If we don't tune in um, to what's going on in other communities, we're going to miss folks. Um, so we, we're about asking questions. So we're going to be doing some national research in specific communities. Um, to really get a better understanding about people and their pets, especially um, as it relates to cats. But then we'll also be working with you guys on um, really helping you develop a multicultural campaign in general. So I think it, it really is about how Best Friends will be better positioned to target its mass comms towards inviting people of color into the fold. Um, and again, messengers matter, messages matter, uh, words matter. Um, I, and I've, I've said many times that it, it's, it's very similar to an accent. Um, 
what I say, um, it sort of reveals where I'm from. And if what I'm saying, and I don't realize it, has a host of biases or misunderstandings connected to the words I'm using, I may not hear it. I'm just like a Southerner may not hear their Southern accent because they're, it's, so, it's something they're so used to. It's, it's our job at CARE to, to sort of research those terminologies, think about those words, and, and frame up the mass communication so that we are inviting as many people into the fold as possible with the least uh, amount of offense. And so that means testing, it means um, IDIs, it means having interviews with folks, it means focus groups. Um, so we'll be doing that and then obviously doing that data dump back to you all so we can sort of see what the scope and shape of the outer world looks like and see what this world that honestly animal welfare has not done a really good job of researching and, and then finding understanding. Um, and obviously we'll be helping advise on the culture councils and things like that. And I mean, the work we've already did just in looking at those folks who were applying to be on the culture council was, was so interesting. I mean, you all don't know, but there were hundreds of people who wanted to be on these culture councils and Jose and I were reading through their little short essays. And I was really stunned at how the earnestness of, of people's stories and people had the have the most unique backgrounds. People of color and people that are not of color just have incredible backgrounds and I think it's so important to go through these exercises where we're not just asking people to volunteer, but we're actually listening to what some of their backstory. Um, I, I thought it was incredible. I wish there was room and time and space to have all of those people do something. Um, but I was just impressed by how many people signed up to volunteer their time um, to be on the culture council at all. So um, I just think there, I think that there's so much, as Julie said, that we'll probably get wrong, but there's so much that we're doing right. And I, I just think it should be a, a model for the way forward in general. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. I know we're running close on time. So Julie, you always talk about this work not just being, you know, a moment in time. You know, what do you mean by that? And what's Best Friends going to do to work towards that? So it's it's funny because I was going through, um, I collect books and I have way too many books. And so I was going through my collection and I found this book that um, was part of required reading in one of my college classes in a soci sociology class um, that was specifically about civil rights. And it was called Quiet Riots. And I just flipped through it and I thought, um, again, I, the same reaction that I had to the video, which is we keep talking about this and we are going to be measured by our actions. We're going to be measured by the work that we do. We're going to be measured by moving this forward. And the door is open for us. We have to step through it. And it is not going to be something that we can look around and say, oh, so-and-so is going to take care of this. Every single one of us has to commit to really that self 
reflection and saying, you know, when I, when I encountered that book and came across it, I, that was something that I studied in college. And back then I thought, oh yeah, um, civil rights movement that happened in the sixties, it's all good now, you know? And, and you think about how it's not all good and you look at the recent events and this incredible device, which is this, has enabled all of us to be able to have a video recorder or a camera with us at all times. And now we are really witnessing what is happening because we didn't have access to that stuff before. We didn't see the George Floyd incidents. We didn't see all these, these situations that are happening all over the country, but now we are. And it isn't all good. And I think that it is really, um, part of us as a human race to take care of each other. It is part of us as a human race to be inclusive, to be open, to be accepting of others, of their differences, whether you are black or brown or gay or transgender. It is our duty as humans to recognize that we have differences. And the only way that we are gonna move forward as a human race is to accept those. And so this is not just a moment. This is going to be an ongoing recognition of that and acceptance of that. And it has potential to be an incredibly beautiful thing. I agree. <laughs> James, my friend, one of the questions that I want to ask you that's on here is, uh, from one of our audience members, and it's how can we get involved in this diversity movement? So what would you recommend for folks who are asking that kind of a question? I mean, in, in, in terms of the inside of the animal welfare world, there's, there's so many things. I mean, honestly, it really is about conversations. It's really about reaching out to your network. If your network is a network that is devoid of people of color, it's hard for me to imagine that because I'm an urban kid, but if, if that is true of, you, if, of your network, start going to places where people of color are. <laughs> you know, introduce yourself, um, be kind, be generous, um, particularly in those places where people in pets reside. I mean, if, you, if you're going to a park, there's probably someone there that is a person of color introduce yourself, say where you're working, say that you love the animals, start the conversation. Um, it really is about, to me, sharing yourself with that other person and inviting them into, into your world in an integrated way. And I and understand if you're, if you're in a big city, that might be easier um, than if you're in a small town, but there are lots of chat groups out there. There's lots of online conversations out there um, I think it really starts with being kind and humane and going where people of color are, um, reading books of color um, to first, you know, get an understanding of where those people are and where, they, where, where they're coming from. Um, I don't believe in this concept of, you know, it's a black thing, you, don't, you won't understand. I think it's a, a human thing um, that we have to get people to understand. Yeah, and I would add that Beyond that, and, in, and as my friend Erica Westbay would always say, and, you know, think of it as people um, who have different gender identities, 
sexual orientation, you know, different age groups, folks with disabilities, you know, we all can expand our circle to be more inclusive yes. and diverse. And um, I think we all need to seek that because it won't just happen unless you live in a really dynamic place and you, you've been surrounded your whole life by that. So yeah. thank you so much, James. This has been really incredible. I'm always so, I'm like lifted in gratitude every time I get to share the space with two people that I just really admire so much. Um, Julie, James, any last words before we send everybody off for their evening? Um, yes, I'm going to thank you, Jose, and I'm going to I'm going to expose you a little bit. Um, oh. We we were on a DEI call uh, last week, and Jose and I have lots of conversations. And during that DEI call, um, we we were talking about some vocabulary like the term empowerment that Jose knows that I, that I don't like so much because it sounds like we're giving someone power. Um, and, and I believe all people are powerful. And Jose started his comment about that dialogue was saying, I have never thought about this before until James said it. And it, it meant so much to me. And I think it's, it's important to recognize that here because so often um, people of color are just not listened to. There have been so many times in my career where I've given of myself and in return, someone else has usurped my words or usurped my thoughts or what, whatever. And I think it happens a lot with people of color because we're often isolated and used and put into a corner. Um, and for you to recognize that what you said came from somewhere else that wasn't from you, um, I think that's really what this movement needs. We need to start elevating people um, because marginalized groups are only marginalized because we won't speak to them. We won't speak to the value of seniors or talking or knowing someone that is LGBTQ um, or elevating the fact that, yeah, I actually know people that are great pet owners and no, they actually don't have a fence. And so if we don't speak to it and we don't elevate it. Um, we are part of that marginalizing system. So with that, I, I thank you. I have to tell you that was just like one of the best parts of my week. Well, I, you have my ear and you have my heart and what you're saying. And so um, I'm listening and I'm learning. Awesome. Julie. I um, absolutely adore you, James. I think you're phenomenal. Oh. I am so honored to be working alongside you. I think I am going to learn so much from you and Equally, Jose, who I think was born, I was having a conversation with somebody else about Jose. He was born at the age of 20. So by the time he was born, he was already 20. He's one of those old soul, mature people that you just are like, wow, where did you come from? And so I, I, I would just leave you guys with the fact that um, just remember that I think the way that we approach things as a society is that people in the weaker position are expected to make people in the stronger position feel at ease. And if you are one of those people who happens to be in that stronger position, that self-awareness and being aware of that effect and really opening yourself up and opening your heart up and being generous and kind that is the only answer 
the video of this town hall discussion where you can see Jose's PowerPoint presentation that he references is up on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.